Hello and welcome to Sake Revolution, America's first sake podcast. I am your host, John Puma, sake nerd at large, founder of the SakeNotes.com and administrator of the internet sake discord. And I'm your host, Timothy Sullivan. I'm a sake samurai, sake educator, as well as the founder of the Urban Sake website. And together, John and I will be tasting and chatting about all things sake. So, John, our stay-at-home orders are still in effect. I have to know, how is your sake supply holding up? Well, um, so I received the shipment on Wednesday. Uh-huh. And, and I ordered a, a little while ago because you had a, a lot of these uh, a lot of delivery places are um, taking, a lo- they're taking a large volume of orders. And so you had to plan ahead. And so in trying to plan ahead ahead, I made a second order earlier this week. And that second order, I, I assumed, would, would take like a week and a half or two weeks to arrive. And uh, what happened with that order? Tim, it's going to be here tomorrow. And <laughs> I will officially have too much sake. Now, is there such a thing as too much sake? Do you, do you have room in your refrigerator? I, uh, I'll need to make some decisions. And, you know, maybe I don't need all of this food. But, well, uh, <laughs> well, whatever you do. You have to keep an eye on your sake stash. I, uh, is somebody going to steal my sake, Tim? Well, today on the show, we have a real honest-to-goodness ninja popping in. Oh, you must be talking about that Chris Johnson, the famous sake ninja. That is right. Let's welcome Chris onto the show right now. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited to be a part of the sake revolution. Yes. You can be a subversive revolutionary with the rest of us. Sweet. So I, I do have a very first important question for you. How did you get the moniker sake ninja? Ah, mm, I, I was going to ask that one, Tim. You beat me to it. This is, a, <laughs> this is an interesting story. Uh, it's actually based off of the Sake Samurai title that I now share with you, Mr. Sullivan. Um, But it came about from early on in the Sake Samurai existence. And I had been living in New York, uh, working in sake for almost uh, 10 years, nine, 10 years at the time. And in 2008, around um, beginning of 2009, or around that time in general, uh, many brewers would come and visit from different places. I was running Bond Street and, and my own restaurants and things like that at the time. And uh, they would introduce me to brewers that I hadn't quite met yet. And every time they'd start out with, oh, this is Chris Johnson. He's a sake samurai. And I'd have to, because of having all that experience of living in Japan and, and, and speaking Japanese, I'd politely bow and say, oh, well, thank you very much for thinking I have this honor, but I have not yet to receive that honor, but I truly appreciate your thoughts. And if it had happened once a year, I would have laughed it off and thought it was funny, but it was happening like, you know, a good, good 15, 20, 30 times. And at one point uh, I was out with a bunch of said brewers and I was at Decibel and now we'd had quite a bit of sake. And as you are, when you're at Decibel, you're already on Sanji Kai or Yoji Kai, which is third or fourth party. So things are really you're hitting stride, as they say. Um, and it started to happen. And I got up from the table as somebody started to do it. And I said, I'm not a samurai. I'm a ninja. And I went down at a ninja's cot and I said, I'm not in the front. I'm in the background. I just make sake happen. You never see me. 
And uh, they were like, what do you mean? I go, ask, I said, you know, John, ask Tim. And you turned to ask Tim and I filled the cup with sake that was sitting in front of you. And you came back and I said, see, ninja. Uh, and then the ninja was born. And that was where it went from that point forward. So. I, I, that is, all right. That is a, that is the best story for, for an origin of a title that I think I've heard in a long time. Yeah. And then I made a company out of it. So there you go. <laughs> hey, excellent. Um, and how did you like, what was your, uh, what was your introduction to this? how did you get into this world of sake? I, I was exposed to sake mostly when I lived in Japan, I was on a program called the jet program, um, that a few of our, uh, sake geek mates, uh, Jamie Graves, uh, Philip Harper, John Gauntner, amongst many others were past jet, uh, individuals and, I was exposed to it there, and then I came back in 1996 after having my first Daiginjo at my farewell party. They were like, here, you're, we're getting ready of you. Have a nice bottle of sake. Don't come back. Um, and I shared it with everybody there, and I tasted it and went, wow, this is phenomenal. I need to learn more about this beverage. So when I got back in 96 and started working as a prep cook at a Japanese restaurant in Midtown, I started studying sake for real. So, so most of your uh, most of your experience and exposure came after you left Japan, then. Yes, uh, especially to the high quality, higher quality sakes and and what we what we refer to as as premium sake or Jinmai's Ginjos and That actually makes me a little bit sad. Kind of discovering <laughs> premium sake on the day you're leaving Japan after one year. Three years. Three years. Oh, wow. Yeah, but you've made up for it in the meantime. <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely have made up for the meantime. I mean, even in, in the times of uh, being home in isolation, I've made up with it with uh, quite a few bottles, uh, sharing them with uh, quite a few different people through these webinars and seminars and things. So I, I know you've done a lot of different types of work in the sake industry. Why don't, can you give us a little overview of the type of work that you've done uh, to represent sake in different ways? Sure. Uh, in the very beginning, uh, most of my experience was through working on the floor as a sommelier at various different restaurants and, and then uh, creating sake lists when I was working on other restaurants. Uh, worked for some restaurants here in New York City. Then I also uh, promoted sake a little bit more through my own restaurants uh, that are no longer in existence, but I had a couple of restaurants here in New York. And then have been lucky enough, uh, kind of the real aha oh my gosh, maybe I should do this more seriously moment came in, in 1999 when uh, I got invited to be a, a participant in the first ever international sake samie competition in Tokyo, uh, where a good friend of mine, and I will, will keep her nameless, invited me to do it. And she basically said, we need a non-Japanese person from uh, New York, and you're the only one I know who does sake. And so I was like, oh, okay, great, let's go. We need a token foreigner. I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, never. You never hear that when you're in Japan for stuff. We just need you to stand in the corner. You don't even need to talk. We just want you there. Um, so they, they sent me over, and long story short, I ended up uh, coming in third place of like 170 people in the whole competition. And I went, oh, wow maybe I'm better at this than I thought I was. I should probably take it a little bit more seriously. And so that launched me into uh, more aspects of, uh, from that, I've been a judge at the U.S. National Sake Appraisal for 17 years uh, at IWC for five. Uh, board of, I'm on the board for the Joy of Sake and help plan that every year uh, in New York and Hawaii. And am also currently uh, working as a board member of the American Sake Association, where we're trying to continue education and promotion of sake through uh, 
through our nonprofit. Great. Now, you, you mentioned that you've been uh, having a lot of sake and, and talking about a lot of sake with the the new normal of Zoom webinars. Uh, and I think on a previous episode, Tim and I talked about them uh, a little bit and, and gave the Japanese name of the onnomi. How has that switch, how have you adapted to that switch? I think it's great to see people. That's one of the things that, you know, not being able to interact with people, having a phone call or whatever is, is all intriguing to share thoughts. But when you actually can see another person's face and have that come by and see laughter, right? Part of the enjoyment that makes us all happy is when you have a smile, when the person across you smiles, whether you're at a bar or, or at dinner, but even through the webinar, you can have that, that reaction when you see each other. And, and I think that's helped me be able to deal with it. I've never been a, a big, uh, drinker at home, um, you know, unless it's a party or I'm having people over for dinner, but myself grabbing a bottle and, and partaking has never really been something I did very much of. And now with this, like I have a lot of sake at home and now being able to share, Hey, we're drinking Masumi today, or Hey, you know, we're drinking Hakkai-san today. It gives me this opportunity to, to share really great beverages with other people and talk about them. And I think that's been really, really great considering uh, the situation we're all in. That's great. And I was wondering, you know, just in general, all kind of sales and uh, partnerships aside, what kind of sake are you drawn to personally? Like if um, kind of the desert isle question, if you had to bring one sake with you, if you were stuck on a desert island, what what not a brand name, but what kind of sake would you would you want to bring with you? Uh, Yamaha or Kimoto Junmai all day long. <laughs> okay, we haven't covered those on our education corner yet, but that is, uh, let me describe, kind of funky, earthy, bold, correct? Yes. That's your style? Yeah, I mean, I think mostly uh, because I love the elegant sakes, I love the clean sakes, but they, after a while, it, it sometimes it becomes overwhelming with too much thought process. Uh, for me, I think... Uh, I never get bored of the depth that the Yamaha and the Kimoto's give me when they're cold or when they're warm or the breadth of, of what I can enjoy with enjoy them with. And I don't think I would get palate fatigue and or tired of, of that style of sake, which is why I would say if, if uh, Tim, you were to banish me to a desert, deserted island and told me only one style of sake, I would choose that. It's, right. it's, very, it's very considerate of Tim to banish you to Desert Island and also give you a steady supply of one type of sake. Yes, yes. I'm, I appreciate that. <laughs> and tie, tying into that question, uh, it doesn't have to be with that funky, earthy style, but what are, um, I think this is a separate question from your favorite style of sake. What are some of your favorite sake and food pairings? You know, with, with really with any style of sake, but I think everyone always has those home run pairings that they really love. What are what are some of your favorites? Uh, I think one of the, the components of sake pairing in general that I kind of fall in love with is every time I sip a sake, I think about what I want to eat with it. And uh, it's not always the same thing. Um, but I certainly love uh, the way cheese and sake interact. It's, it's always been one of my fun, especially game changer for people that are coming around to sake for the first time or, oh, I don't understand it. Or, you know, okay, here, here's a really easy way for me to get you into this, this topic. Let's have some cheese and sake. And now not every cheese and every sake uh, dance in the same circle. Uh, but it is a, is a quite easy pairing to get people's uh, heads around. Um, I think Yamaha with uh, either 
pasta carbonara or um, with pizza are, are some of my favorite kind of what'd you just do to me pairings, like where people look at you like you're crazy. Uh, those are those are a couple of, of my favorites there. And then semi-leaning back towards the classics is is like I love getting a Jinmai Ginjo that has some nice pretty fruit and pairing it with a pan-seared scallop, right, where you're getting a little bit of richness from texture pairing with richness of texture and natural sweetness pairing with natural sweetness. And that's another one of my favorite pairings. Mm. Are you hungry yet? I'm, I'm getting a little hungry. I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I understand that we've all brought uh, sake today, and we're, we're not going to be drinking it just yet, but I believe that uh, – I know, a moment. Uh, and I believe, though, that, uh, that the commonality between them is Gunma Prefecture. And I think that Gunma is a, is a place that makes a lot of great sake, and a lot of people – don't think about Gunma as much as maybe they should. Uh, have you guys ever been over to Gunma? I have not been there yet. I'm, it's on my list of places I'd really like to go visit. Yeah, you know, I have not been to Gunma either, but um, it, it is uh, perhaps a little bit of description for our listeners. It's right next to Niigata. It's about an hour north of Tokyo. And it's one of the landlocked prefectures, so it doesn't have access to the ocean. As far as the sake scene there, I think uh, at my last count, there's about 20 or 22 breweries in Gunma right now. So when we do our tasting, we're going to be sampling three different uh, Gunma breweries. And I think this will be a series that John and I will continue uh, to feature periodically sakes from different prefectures around Japan. This is going to be the first of uh, several episodes to come that feature uh, different, different prefectures. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a intriguing prefecture. You know, the, one of the eight landlocked ones is, as Tim just mentioned, but quite mountainous on most of, uh, of most of uh, Gunma other than uh, that part that's attached to Ibaraki and Saitama, where it's a little bit more of the, the open uh, plain but really kind of great snow, all those things that we talk about that make uh, an area great for making sake and, and, and producing great rice, diurnal range, plenty of snow, plenty of cold winters to, to produce really high quality sake. So it, although it's not known as well as we think it should be, it is a great place to make sake. Yeah, my, my one and only exposure to Gunma was like taking a train through it. Uh, on my way to uh, to Niigata, we actually I didn't realize that we'd be going through there, and we stop at at one of the stations, and the announcement comes over that we're at Gunma Station. I'm like, like Gun Gunma's over here. Oh. <laughs> All right, put a note next time we're gonna be, <laughs> we should stop into Gunma for a while because I really love the sake from there. Uh, note that to date we have not made good on that promise, but one of these days, provided we're allowed to travel again, it's on the list. Definitely. Yeah. Maybe we should make a plan that we all just meet in Gunma on our next uh, sake adventure. Yes, and then we can do an episode from Gunma. So it'll be uh, the 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 uh, second part of this one in a way. Yes, we can do the Gunma the sequel. Yes. There you go. <laughs> all right. So, Tim, what have you brought along today? Yeah, let's do. Let's all introduce our sakes first. I have a sake that I've actually never had before. I recently picked it up. Oh. It is called Akagi-san Daiginjo. 
So Akagi-san is a very famous mountain in Gunma, Akagi-yama, Akagi Mountain. And this brewery is uh, in the watershed of that mountain. So the water comes from Akagi Mountain. And this is a Daiginjo grade sake. So when we talked about the classifications recently, Daiginjo was that alcohol added super premium grade. And the rice milling rate for this particular bottle is 38% remaining. So this is a little bit of a splurge bottle for myself, but I thought for the Sake Ninja, I'm going to bust it out and uh, we're going to enjoy some of the top quality from Gunma. And uh, yeah, the brewery name is Kondo Shuzo, Kondo Brewery. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, Akagi-san. That's what I've got. Uh, CJ, how about you? What do you have? So uh, thank you very much for uh, spending the extra money on me, Tim. I appreciate it. Uh, so for for me today, I have a, a sake called uh, Seitoku uh, Jinmai Ginjo. Um, and it's from close to those plains, uh, a little bit down south, close to Mount Yogi that you had mentioned before. Um, a really interesting brewery uh, formed in, in uh, 1959 as a collaboration between four different uh, small breweries uh, that have now created this brand to produce uh, sake and harmony is the way they describe it. So uh, small breweries that were Yokoyama Shuzoten, uh, Fuzawa Shuzoten, uh, Kanra Shuzo, and then Baba Shuzoten, um, all in the small towns surrounding uh, where the, the new Seitoku facility is now. Um, super cool, uh, very in, in what they often describe Gunma style. It's, it's subdued, um, meant to kind of just create a beautiful balance. They make a really wonderful sake here, but uh, they're not necessarily the big, lots of ginjo flavors and lots of those Im impactful uh, melon uh, notes, just a little bit more kind of a subtle uh, confluence of really wonderful flavors. And which bottle did you bring from them? So I brought their Jinmai uh, Ginjo, which is known as Trapeza here in the United States. John, what are you going to be drinking with us tonight? Uh, so I went and got the uh, Mizubashu Ginjo. And Mizubashu is from a brewery called a Nagai Shuzo. And it's, it is a little north of Mount Akagi. And these guys make uh, that... Gunma style. It's very uh, crisp. It's very nice. It's uh, we'll get into a little bit more when I start sipping it, but this is always a kind of a, a sake that I always think is very pleasant and relaxing to drink. And John, that's a Ginjo sake you have there, right? Yeah. So another alcohol added style. It's not the Junmai style. It's just Ginjo. Why don't you go ahead, John, and, and you can taste first. While I'm opening this up, I'll mention that this one is using Yamada Nishiki, and it's polished to 50%. So people who got in on our episode about sake grades will uh, recognize that this could, if they really wanted to, be considered a Daikinjo. But in this case, probably for flavor profile reasons, they went for Ginjo. And the aroma on this is actually really, really kind of light and subtly fruity, very, very elegantly fruity. Like not, um, it, I believe in a previous episodes, we've talked about sakes that had a more of like a, a ripe fruit or um, 
almost overripe fruits and just like really coming at you. Whereas this is more of like you're, you're, you're you think there's fruit in the other room, but you're not sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that famous wafting melon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. You're much more articulate than I am. <laughs> and as far as the taste goes, it's a very light, a little bit sweet coming in and then a sudden dry finish just comes out of nowhere and, and then you're, and then you're good. And it's, it's, it's why it's just really pleasant to just sip on. This is a great sipping sake, awesome. which I'm going to continue to do probably for the rest of the show. <laughs> Are you getting any ricey elements or is it more, more fruit driven? Um, very slight, not a lot. There's not a lot of rice to this at all. Um, it's, it's a little bit fruit. And then again, just, just that the dryness at the end and it's so crisp and dominating. It's really nice. So a really clean finish. Very. Awesome. Cool. So CJ, how about uh, you? Would you like to pour your glass and give us a, give us your impressions sure. of a state toku? So this again is the Junmai Ginjo, right? It is the Junmai Ginjo. So no uh, alcohol added. I can smell the elegance from here. I haven't even brought it to my nose yet. So you said there were four breweries that came together. Is it a co-op where they're all still independent or did they join? In my research, place? it's become one, uh, one okay. brewery. Um, so they kind of consolidated, even though they were separate beforehand. And may, mm -hmm. they may have been able to say separate for a while, but I think in present day, it's become just a single, single brewery. So this sake, similar to what John described in his, this was milled to uh, 50%. So could also uh, be classified as a daiginjo if they chose. It's made from that rice that I know John learned about uh, and in his counting skills get improved. It's made from gohyaku. Uh, oh, very good. There you go. Uh, just wanted to, you know, make make sure he was still learning. And even though we didn't have the education corner uh, this time, we did we did get to make sure he was paying attention. Um, they use uh, yeast 1801 and 1901 in producing this, which normally would produce quite a lot of those floral ginjo notes. But again, because of the subdued style of this brewery, you're getting them, and it's pretty inelegant, but it's not in your face. Yeah, really soft floral, just a touch of, of when you just slice open uh, a honeydew, you haven't really dug into it yet, but you're getting just a very soft, uh, as Tim said, wafting melon aroma. So that seems like a little bit, that seems like a little bit of a commonality between John sake and your sake, CJ. Yeah, I, would, I think... One of the things that I've noticed in drinking good masakes uh, and trying them is that obviously there's always an exception to the general rule as such, but uh, they are relatively subtle sakes. Um, and uh, that harmony between the the aroma and the taste is is a, a goal that they have. And, and maybe because of the water and just their style, um, you know, a lot of salted food back in the day um, because they are a landlocked. Uh, area. Um, and so maybe that played into part of the the style of being more subtle flavors uh, to, to balance out with the food. But on the palate, really clean. Again, just crisp, a tiny touch of almost like Asian pear. Mm. Yeah, light melon. 
a little bit of strawberry and then a touch of, uh, of rice. Um, just like a really clean uh, cooked rice or steamed rice, like a bowl of steamed rice that's got no influence of anything else, nothing on it, just like freshly cooked steamed rice, just a nice little delicate bite is kind of where this is, is taking me. Sounds nice. Yeah. So, so Tim, what's in your glass this evening? Well, again, I have the Akagi-san Daiginjo. And uh, this has, as I mentioned before, a rice milling rate of 38% remaining. And that is very, very small, luxurious milling rate. And I think for sure this is the, the lowest, most premium milling rate we've had on the show so far. We've had a lot of Junmais and Honjozos, uh, and this is, I think, our first Daiginjo. Um, so I'm going to give it a smell. I believe you're right about that. And uh, yeah. it is by far, I think, the uh, the lowest we've had. Well, the aroma is actually really restrained. I'm actually a little surprised. Hmm. I thought, you know, on paper, this would be a little bit more exuberant. But the aroma is really uh, tight and really restrained. Very gentle, fruity notes. Uh, but it, it, I'm actually getting a bit more floral as well, like a little lilac and white flower, kind of a, a very gentle floral aromatics. It's lovely, but it's very delicate. Mm. I'm going to give it a taste. I would say the sake I had also is falls into that delicate component. Yeah. So this has a, a very rich texture. Sometimes I refer to sakes as velvety, and that is the word that popped into my head. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had aged this sake for a year. It tastes a little bit uh, on the rich side, velvety, but silky smooth. And uh, it has a quiet finish. Uh, there's a bit of a lingering uh, uh, finish here, but very quiet and gentle. For me, the texture really predominates the the flavors are very gentle as you as you both said uh, very very mild fruits uh this is going to be the new trademark of gunmasake uh, <laughs> uh wafting melon <laughs> that wafting melon yeah so um very gentle but you know it has a sexy elegant side to it um you can tell that uh this uh has some you know some thought behind it as far as the structure of the sake and the texture. And I'm getting in the wine glass, I'm getting a nice viscosity clinging to the side of the glass. So a very nice, a rich body, but super gentle um, aroma and super silky texture. Really great, really great Daiginjo. Sounds like pretty beautiful sake is uh, all around today. Yeah. yeah. And one thing we like to talk about CJ is also what we would pair with these sakes. I know you're more of a chef than uh, John and myself, and I've seen your Instagram, so I know what you're cooking at home. Uh, what would you pair with that uh, seitoku you have in front of you? So I think I could go a couple ways, actually. Um, if we were going to uh, stay in the Japanese kind of thought process, this is going to be beautiful with just 
like a, a simple sashimi, um, and if we're going to take it to a slightly different place, would be like a tiradito or or a, a ceviche in the more uh, European aspect of it versus the the thicker chunks, like a nicely thinly sliced, almost tiradito type thing with a, just a touch of citrus on top. I think would do really well with that. A little pinch of uh, like a micro herb on top because there's just a little hint of herbaceousness in the back of this sake now that it's starting to pop through. Uh, I think that would be wonderful. Um, I also like the idea of um, putting this with uh, a little bit of pork chop. Um, Mm. That, uh, you know, because when you cook a pork chop with uh, simply with butter and, and light herbs the 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 little bit of fat that's on a on on pork actually becomes a little bit sweet and gives you kind of fruity flavors and i think this sake would help support and elevate those notes in the pork and would really accentuate those flavors um so i would put it up next to a a cast iron seared uh pork chop with a touch of thyme in the butter Uh, we all need more time don't we Uh, i gave it that was a volleyball (laughs) Oh, okay. Ugh. Tim, what about you? <laughs> okay, so Daiginjos uh, are very elegant, very silky, and this one certainly lives up to that reputation. Um, there's there's a few ways you could go with this. When I come across really elegant, velvety Daiginjos like this, um, I don't think about too much protein or you know uh, anything with a char or smoke on it at all. Uh, I go more for like uh, crab salad or some lighter um, dish with a bit of umami in there. And uh, I also like to drink a sake like this super elegant, uh, really, really uh, delicious. I like to have this before dinner, like as an aperitif, mm. because you want your palate to be as sharp as possible when you taste these expensive, super uh, interesting, uh, super premium sakes. And uh, I like to have a small glass of this before dinner, really let it enliven my palate, almost like a liquid appetizer. Love that. That's one way I enjoy these. Love that. I always I always laugh with friends when it comes to, you know, people always break out the really good stuff after they've already drank five or six bottles. And I'm like, yeah. no, no, open the good one early because then we can actually appreciate it. You know, at worst case scenario, the good one should be bottled too. You know, like, but waiting until the end of that, you're like, okay, fine, I'm going to open that really special Daiginjo and no one knows what they drank. I, I have been guilty of that. And I've also been the guy that says, no, wait. So uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I'm maturing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, John, speaking of maturing, what would you pair with this particular socket that you well, have? All right. So, I have a very, very uh, specific dish that popped into my head when I was sipping this and it's sauteed broccoli with like garlic and oil and some like, and a little bit of pasta in it. Like that kind of, you know, very light. It's still very light. It's the, the oil is going to, I think, complement the, uh, the dryness of the sake nicely. It's not going to, they're not going to get in the way of each other. This is sake is very light. So I'm worried about giving it too much, anything with too much of a aggressive flavor. But I think something like that would go would go a long way with it, and it's also making me very hungry. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, uh, I mean, are you cooking tonight? Are we headed over there? What's going on? <laughs> uh, you know, we'll just um, we'll 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 get out in one chair in each 
corner of the apartment and uh, <laughs> we'll slide plates across the floor at each other. I'm in. Well, I can't. I can't wait to actually sip sake in person with with you all again soon. So again, thank you very much for uh, letting me join uh, the sake revolution tonight. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my my experience and uh, the wonderful sakes of Gumba. But I have noticed, and this is a long time for me. I had sip sake, but I had yet to say kampai to you two wonderful people. Uh, as I said. I look forward to cheersing with you in person again, but for now, can we do it uh, across the airwaves? I, I, I think I think we can do that, Tim. Absolutely. All right. Here's to you. Come, Come on. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for joining us, and thank you all so much for tuning in. If you can, please take a moment to rate our show on Apple Podcasts. And make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcast so that you won't miss an episode. And as always, to learn more about any of the topics or sakes we talked about in today's episode, be sure to visit our website, sakerevolution.com, for the detailed show notes. And send your feedback or show ideas. Drop us an email anytime at feedback at sakerevolution.com. So until next time, remember to keep drinking sake and come on. Come on.